All right, well, good morning. Good to be with you. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at River City. I uh, just want to say, if you are new or visiting, just want to say welcome. It is good to have you. If there's anything that we can do to uh, serve you or connect you with the community here at River City, we'd really love to be able to do that. So come find me or Becky or someone else you've seen up front uh, or anyone who looks like they know what they're, what's going on around here. We really genuinely would love to get to know you, and so we're grateful for you. Um, looking forward to opening God's Word with you guys this morning. Uh, this fall, we are studying together as a church Exodus chapter 20, uh, which is the account of the giving of the Ten Commandments. And last week, we took a look at the first commandment. Uh, the first commandment is to have no other gods before God, we, to, to worship God supremely and exclusively. We talked about how that the first commandment isn't just the first commandment. It's the greatest commandment. Jesus himself in Matthew 22 highlights how the first commandment is really the greatest commandment. And that's, it's, the, it's the one on which all the other ones hinge. If we keep the first one, we'll be able to keep the rest of them. But if we ignore the first one, we're going we're gonna to have no shot at the rest of them. We'll ignore the rest. And, and the reason for that is because we are all worshipers. It is the thing we were made by God to do. It is, in fact, the one thing that every human can never stop doing. And what, what we worship is the thing, whatever holds the overwhelming, controlling influence in your life, that is the thing that you worship. That is your little G, God. And when the object of our worship is misaligned, when the thing that holds the controlling, overwhelming influence in our hearts and in our lives is not God, when it's misaligned, the rest of our lives will be misaligned as well. And so the first commandment, we saw that we were instructed to, to worship God supremely and exclusively, to have the one true God be the overwhelming, controlling influence in our hearts and in our life. No one and nothing else should hold that position. And we saw how the command shows us, it reveals to us that God is, that he is both worthy of being worshipped supremely and exclusively, but also that he is rightly jealous when we give our worship to something else. We also saw as well how this command confronts us. You see, the fact that the very first command is about who or what we worship should, should clue us in, should wake us up to the reality that by nature we don't worship God. You see, our hearts are prone to wander. They are prone to love other things and other people and other situations more than we love God. To have something or someone else be our God. You see, that's the definition of idolatry. Last we saw how on the surface we worship things like family or parents or kids. We worship things like spouses or the desire for kids or the desire for a spouse. We worship things like money or possessions or, or our careers or our personal goals. Those are these things that hold controlling influences in our lives. But we talked most importantly last week about how underneath all of those things on the surface... The source underneath that stuff is always some combination of an overwhelming, controlling desire for power, control, comfort, or approval. You see, what we want more than anything is power or influence over people. What we desire is control of our situations and our circumstances. What we, what we long for is the acceptance of other people, maybe our family, our friends, our coworkers. What we yearn for is freedom from stress, freedom from responsibility. You see, and those source idols are the thing that is underneath all of the other stuff. 
And these controlling desires, these gods that we worship instead of the one true God, they lead us to break all of the other commandments. See, the reality is that the most important part of our faith is not the sincerity of, of what we worship, but is the who that we worship. You see, it's possible to be full of sincere worship for the wrong God. It is possible to be full of sincere worship for the wrong God. And when the object of our worship is misaligned, the rest of our lives will be too. You see, what happens is we pursue these things endlessly. We worship them. We are controlled by them. And they never actually end up satisfying. They're never actually giving the life that we look for. They never actually fulfill. They never, they never actually bring about the thing that we long to. And instead, they just enslave us. And at some level, we all understand that. Some of us feel the pain and the weightiness and the brokenness of the unmet expectations of the things we worship. Some of us, we just feel this angst, and what happens is we just keep pursuing them endlessly, and we keep twisting those things, and we keep giving ourselves to them more and more and more to try to get them to satisfy and get them to fulfill, but they never can. You see, and we... The thing is that they enslave us, and there is nothing that we can do on our own to get free. We are hopelessly stuck. You see, because what we talked about last week is that you cannot just stop worshiping things that lead to death. You can't just stop worshiping. You see, humans, the one thing we can never stop doing is stop worshiping. We can't just stop worshiping things that lead to death. Instead, we have to start worshiping the one thing that leads to life. You see, we need the expulsive power of a new affection that Thomas, that I uh, quoted, Thomas Chalmers wrote about. You see, the Ten Commandments, they, they can diagnose your sin-sick heart. They can show you what a healthy heart looks like, but the Ten Commandments, they can't cure you. They, the reality is that you cannot obey the Ten Commandments on your own. For that, you need the gospel. You see, what we need is the gospel to give us new hearts that are captivated by Jesus and captivated by his word, hearts that are drawn to worship him instead of lesser things, hearts that, hearts that love him supremely, hearts that long to obey him out of love, not out of duty. You see, obedience never produces love. You see, oh, but love, it always produces obedience. You see, and when God graciously captivates your heart with the gospel, what it does is it transforms you. It transforms everything about you. You see, it enables you, it motivates you, it empowers you to obey in a way that you could never do on your own. You see, the the Ten Commandments are a law, they are a weight under which you are inevitably crushed. You see, but there was one who stood under the weight of the Ten Commandments, and his name was Jesus. You see, and when we put our hope and our faith in him, what it does is it it enables us, it motivates us, it empowers us to actually obey. You see, it does something, the gospel does something the Ten Commandments never could. You see, and I I go over all of that. I do that longer recap this morning of what we talked about last week because the first and the second commandments are intrinsically intertwined. In some ways, they are incredibly difficult to separate. You see, and the second commandment, which, which is against worshiping man-made images of God, isn't going to make a lot of sense until we frame it in the context of worshiping the one true God. You see, the second commandment, just like the first, is fundamentally about worship. It's fundamentally about worship. You see, the first commandment, it focuses on who we worship. But as we'll see this morning, the second commandment, it focuses on how we worship. 
The first commandment is about who we worship. The second commandment is all about how we worship. One commentator, I think, sums it up best this way. He says, the first commandment forbids us to worship false gods, but the second commandment, it forbids us to worship the true God falsely. You see, how we worship matters nearly as much to God as whom we worship. And so in light of that, let's pray. We'll dive into our study of God's word this morning and see how his word might instruct us, might, might reveal himself to us, might confront us, and might transform us. So let's pray. King Jesus, we come to you this morning. God, we are so grateful for you. Thanks that you have loved us. God, thanks that you have sent your son to die for us. Thanks that you have given us your word so that we might know you and that we might live in light of who you are. And so, God, we just come before you this morning and we ask you that you would work in our hearts through the power of your word. God, I don't have what I need outside of your strength and your power this morning. And so, God, I come humbly. God, would you fill me with your spirit so our time would be fruitful and good. God, so that what I say would not just be words coming out of my mouth, but would have power that comes from you. God, and we need you to enable us to respond to you. We need you to give us soft hearts that can respond to your word and, and can, and can uh, be confronted by it in ways that lead to change. And so, God, without you, we don't have any hope this morning. Uh, but... Jesus, you promised to meet us in your word. And so, God, we look forward to the ways that you would do that, God, for our good. More than anything, we pray for your great glory in all the world. Amen. Amen. Well, we are in Exodus chapter 20. Now, I'm going to read the first couple of verses here, and the second command, it begins in verse 4. I'll start in verse 1. God spoke all of these words. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. First commandment, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Second commandment, verse 4, you shall not make, any, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in waters below, and you shall not bow down to, to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and who keep my commands. All right, so the second commandment this morning. I think it's easy to read this commandment and to think, all right, so don't make statues of birds and fish and stuff like that. Sweet. I think we nailed that one, right? We're like, we're good. I mean, the first one kind of got me, I'll admit, right? But the second one, I think we got that one on lockdown, right? I don't see any statues going around. Like, I think we're good, right? Uh, Not so fast, maybe, right? You You see, I think that reaction that we have, oftentimes it reveals that we are rather blind to the kind of worship that God calls us to, the kind of worship that he is worthy of. See, and so that leads us to the question, that first question we want to ask this morning. What is God instructing us to do in this first commandment? What is it that he's wanting us to believe and to live in light of? What is the command not to worship man-made images of God all about? Well, I think on the surface, the second command, it prohibits two things. And the first is making images that represent God. You see, verse 4 says, You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below, right? So sky, ground, sea, that covers it. Anything in creation, don't use that to represent the creator, right? You see, it's important to remember here 
This command is being given, the first people it's being given to are people who have spent the last 400 plus years in slavery in Egypt, in a society that not only worshipped a million different gods, but in which creation, created things, was always the form in which all of those gods took. You see, Horus, the, 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 he was a god in Egypt, he had the head of a falcon, and Anubis had the head of a jackal. And You see, and when it came to the Egyptians and their gods, any animal was fair game, right? Creation was the thing that was the, the, that was the thing in which all the gods were imaged after. You see, but the God of Israel, as one commentator writes, refused to be represented in the image of any of his creatures. You see, and so God says he prohibits the second command, making images that represent him. But secondly, what it prohibits is worshiping those images or trying to worship God through those images. You see, verse 5 goes on, it says, you shall not bow down to them or worship them. You see, God is not against art. He is not against beauty. He is not against sculpture. He is not against painting. He is not against any of those things. What he is opposed to, as one commentator writes, is infusing objects with spiritual efficacy as if a man-made artifact can bring us closer to God, can represent God, or can establish communion with God. See, the Old Testament is full of stories of God's people trying to use man-made things to try to worship God or try to get to him. Most, most famously, I think, just a few chapters later in Exodus 32, Moses has been up on Mount Sinai for 40 days, and his long absence has created like this sense of kind of uncertainty and panic amongst the people. And, and so what they do is they come to Aaron, and he's the second in command to Moses, and they're seeking reassurance. And, and what they want isn't another God. Instead, what they want to do is they want to construct an image which would represent God's presence in their midst. They, they want an image of God that they can hold on, to. They want an image of God they can see, that they can feel, that they, that they can touch. And so they melt down a bunch of gold and they make this golden calf or bull and, and it, they make this physical idol as a representation of God. You see, and they create this image because they're scared. You see, they didn't trust God. They, they couldn't see him. They couldn't hold on to him. They, they couldn't guarantee that he was with them by their eyes and with their sight. Trevin Racks, one commentator, he he highlights how we do the exact same thing. He says, we all want to make God manageable. We want to see him. We want to put him in a box. We, we want a God who will do what we want him to do when we want him to do it. We like to have a God that lives according to our boundaries and edges. We want a God we can control. You see, what's at the heart of the second commandment isn't simply a, a pro- prohibition against worshiping images or statues. You see, what's at the heart of the second commandment is a prohibition against self-willed worship. You see, we want to define God and worship him the way we want to do it. You see, we want to define God the way we like to see him or the way we want to see him. You see, the truth is, but we don't get to define God. See, we don't get to decide what he is like or how we get to perceive him. J.D. Greer, one pastor, he says this, we have to conform our conceptions of God to his reality and not vice versa. You see, we break the second commandment whenever we define God in our hearts as we want him to be rather than believing what he reveals himself to be. You see, it doesn't matter how we want to imagine what God is like. You see, God is who he is. He gets to define himself to us. You see, in the second commandment, God is saying, not only am I worthy of being worshipped supremely and exclusively, 
but I'm worthy of, but I am the one who defines how I will be worshipped. I am the one who reveals myself to you. I'm the one who defines how I will be worshipped. You see, and what this command does is it also reveals to us something about God. You see, in God's command to be worshipped rightly, right, he reveals something about him. I think the first thing we learn about God is that in forbidding the worship of man-made images, God is saying that making an idol out of him shouldn't be done because it can't be done. You see, the Apostle Paul, he says the same, the same thing in Acts chapter 17 when he's in Athens. He, he comes to the Athenian philosophers and he's talking to them about the, the statue of an unnamed God that they're trying to worship in their city. And, and he says to him, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples built by hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. See, the Apostle Paul, he's saying this. He's saying that God is the creator and the giver of life. He cannot be squeezed into some man-made idol. He cannot be squeezed into some finite picture. You see, the truth is, is that the creation reflects the creator, not the other way around. It's the creation reflects the creator, not the other way around. You see, one, you see, God doesn't want to be represented by images from his creation because nothing in creation can represent him rightly. They all distort the truth about who he really is. One commentator writes it this way. Unlike contemporary people, the Israelites were not, made, uh, were, uh, were not to make or worship visual representations of their God. In both Egypt and Canaan, human and animal forms played an important function in depicting the attributes of a deity. But any attempt on the part of the Israelites to represent God using such images would produce a distorted picture of his true nature. You see, man-made images of God, they always distort God. You see, they might have elements of the truth, but they never reveal the true picture of what God is really like. They only show us a one dimension of who he is. For example, we, we talked in Exodus 32 about the Israelites who melted down gold and built this golden calf or bull. And the Israelites, you see, they emphasized in, in, in building this bull, what they did is they emphasized God's strength. And, his, and his, the, the protection that they wanted him to give them. And that's true. God is strong. He is mighty. He does protect. You see, but what they did in building this image of God is they distorted God's holiness. They distorted his purity, his righteousness. They, they minimized his wisdom, his gentleness, his goodness. You see, it wasn't an accurate picture of God. You see, idols, they never are. You see, one of the most unique things about the God of the Bible is that he chooses to reveal himself in word. He chooses to reveal himself through words. You see, because pictures and images, they can never contain him. Pictures and images, they can never contain him. They never do him justice. You see, they can never reflect him rightly. You see, and so God doesn't just want to be worshipped supremely and exclusively. He wants to be worshipped rightly. He wants to be worshipped for the God he really is. And verse 5 tells us that he is jealous to be worshipped for the God that he truly is. Not the God we want him to be or the God that we imagine him to be or the God we think that we need him to be. You see, jealousy, it doesn't get a lot of positive press these days. Most of the time when we think about the word jealousy, we think about it's associated with envy, right? We, that we want something we don't have or that someone else that doesn't belong to you. But but however, but when something really does belong to you, there are times when it needs to be protected. 
You see, in a holy jealousy, the holy jealousy that God has is one that guards someone's rightful possession. You see, God's jealousy is not insecure, insane, possessive human jealousy that we often interpret that word to mean. No, it is an intense devotion to his own glory and the good of those he loves. God is jealous for his own glory and for the good of those he loves. You see, God is worthy of supreme, exclusive, right worship. And he knows that when we worship him in this way, that we are in the sweet spot of life and joy and blessing because what we're doing is what we were made to do in the first place, worshiping the right God in the right way. You see, The God of the Bible calls us not just to worship him supremely and exclusively, but to worship him rightly. It's not just who we worship that matters. It's it's how we worship. You see, and one commentator writes it this way. He says, if we decide to worship this kind of God, we lose control. If we decide to worship a God who is worthy of absolute allegiance, who is worthy of unquestioning obedience, then we lose control. When we worship a God who defines himself, then we lose control. And that leads us to how we, this command confronts us. You see, you think it's, I think it's tempting to think of fashioning imagery of God to worship as a thing of the past. But like the rest of God's law, the second commandment is spiritual. It applies to the heart, and our hearts are always trying to remake God in our own image. You see, we want to make God into an image that we can understand, into an image that we can control, into an image that we can manipulate, that we can understand the boundaries on. You see, like the Israelites made the golden calf to reassure themselves of God's protection over them and to meet their immediate felt needs, we are just the same. You see, rather than worshiping God in spirit and in truth, we reshape him, we remake him so that he is safely under our control. You see, most commonly what you see, what, what you see is that when people say, I like to think of God as X, Y, or Z, I like to think of God this way, they're usually remaking God in their own image and breaking the second commandment. You see, we tend to emphasize the things about God we like and minimize the stuff we don't, right? We fashion a God of pure, unending love, and we minimize his just judgment of sin. You see, we fashion a God of limitless forgiveness, and we minimize his justice and his righteousness, We fashion a God who approves of all of our choices and we minimize his holiness and we minimize his purity. You see, in our distorted worship of God, our our inaccurate worship of God, our wrong worship of the right God is usually a side effect of trying to worship something else alongside or ahead of him. It's usually a side effect of breaking, the second, of breaking the first commandment. You see, what we really worship is power. What we really long for is influence over people or over situations. And so we fashion a God who needs us to make his will happen. We fashion a God who cares more about outcomes than he does about people. We fashion a God who always agrees with our positions and demonizes anyone who holds a different one. But that is not a true image of God. You see, what God really wants is for us to trust and rely on his power always to bring about our will and our, his will and our good. What God wants is, is for us to be set, is for us to be conformed to the image of him. And what that means is that we are out of line with it. And so to, to believe in a God that always agrees with us is to believe in a false God altogether. You see, what we really worship is control. 
You see, what we pursue at any cost is control over our life and and our circumstances, our situation. And so what we do is we fashion a God that never, ever wants us to worry about money, who always wants us to have more than enough. We fashion a God that never asks us to walk by faith and not by sight. We, we fashion an image of God who always shows us the end before we take the first step, who would never ask us to do something in faith or something uncertain. You see, but that is not a true image of God. You see, the real God wants us to rely on him for everything. The true God calls us often to trust and follow him in situations that require that we don't know where we're going. You see, or sometimes what we really worship is comfort. What we long for most is an easy life free from stress and responsibility. And so we fashion a God who loves to bless, who loves to be generous, but one who would never ask us to sacrifice for him or for the good of others. We, we fashion a God who wants us to have the perfect job or the perfect family or the perfect kids, a God who, who just wants those things to fulfill all our hopes and dreams, a God who never requires us to die to ourself and our own desires and our own pleasures. You see, but that is not a true image of God. See, the truth is that God wants us to pour ourselves out for his glory and for the good of others who wants us to be satisfied in him and in nothing else. Sometimes what we worship is approval. See, the thing we long for most, the thing that holds the overwhelming controlling influence on our life is the acceptance and the affirmation of our family or our friends or our coworkers. And so we fashion a God that's okay with a little dishonesty. We fashion a God that's okay with taking credit for work that isn't ours sometimes. It's just the cost of that promotion. We, we, we fashion a God who approves of every and any sexual practice or expression, you see, because we can't afford to tell someone that what they're doing might be wrong. You see, we fashion a God that's okay with taking a back seat while you prioritize your family or your career or all the things that matter more to you than him and matter and what people think is best for you than what he does. You see, but that is not a true image of God. See, the true God, the real God demands supreme loyalty. He, he demands exclusive devotion. He demands complete obedience. You see, the reality is that we break the second command all the time. You see, we try to fashion an image of God that we've, we try to worship an image of God that we have fashioned ourselves. One that will meet our needs, one that will give us what we long for, one in which we can control and manage and have in a box. But that's not the true God, is it? In doing so, we distort and we dishonor the true God. And so the question is this morning, how do we obey? If the default mode of our heart is always to fashion God in our own image, how, how do we obey? How do we worship the right God in the right way? And the answer is quite simple, yet incredibly profound. One commentator puts it this way, rather than remaking God into our own image, we need to be remade into his image. God does this by bringing us into a personal and saving relationship with his son, Jesus. You see, in the beginning of the world, God created humanity in his image 
to be reflections of his glory, to serve as mirrors that reflect to the earth who he is and what he is like, to, to reveal his character and his nature and his goodness to the world. You see, but sin, it damages our ability to do that. Like graffiti on a mirror, it distorts the image that, that we are reflecting of the God that we worship. You see, it is like a mirror, it has been defaced by sin, and we are no longer able to reflect God's glory as he intended You see, but the good news of the gospel is that God sent his son Jesus into the world to repair his image in us. You see, Jesus, he came as the true image of God. Colossians 1.15 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of his being. Kevin DeYoung writes it this way, Jesus did the seemingly impossible. He allowed, him, he allowed humans to see the God who cannot be seen. That's the mystery and the majesty of the incarnation. You see, we don't need pictures. We don't need statues. We don't need icons. We have the image. We have the icon. We have God himself. You see, and where we fail to image God rightly, where we fail to reflect his true identity, his nature, and his character to the world, where we fail to to live out the identity and the purpose that we have been given, Jesus did not. You see, he bore the image of God perfectly, and he did it for you on your behalf. You see, in order to come to God in true worship, you don't need to come to him through idols. You don't need to come to him through man-made images of him. What you do is the way you come to God in true worship is that you come to him through his Son, You see, and when we come to Jesus, then God lives in us by his spirit and he works in us to repair his image so that we might live for the praise of his glory as we were always intended to do. One pastor writes it this way, through sin, we threw the mirror on the ground and it broke and Jesus through salvation starts to put that mirror back together. I don't know about you, that that was really good news from my heart this week. I don't know about you, but I often sense the deformity, the defacement of the way I reflect God. I reflect the, I see, I sense clearly oftentimes the ways I fail at at bearing his image rightly in my family, in my marriage, in our church here. I sense the ways that I do not rightly reflect him. You see, and this passage was such good news for my heart this week as I was reminded that Jesus came to be the image that I am not that he did it for me, that he did it on my behalf, that the power of the gospel means that, that by him increasingly, ongoingly, he is remaking me into the image, that, into an image of him that rightly reflects the Father, that rightly reflects who God is and what he is like. See that this week, that just caused my heart to want to surrender more to him. Say, Jesus, less of me, more of you. Jesus, remake me ongoingly, continually. Keep making me into the image of God so that I might reflect you as I should. You see, the gospel does something that the Ten Commandments never could. The gospel empowers you to obey. 
gospel empowers you to obey. Trevin Rax writes it this way. He said, it's because of Jesus that we are now free to worship God as we should. It is because of him that we are now free, that we are now able to worship God as we should. Don't think that your hope lies in you keeping this command. You will never be able to keep it completely. Our only hope lies outside of ourself in the finished work of Jesus, the one who has done it perfectly on your behalf. Do you see how the gospel is so different than religion? You see, religion, religion says clean yourself up, make yourself presentable, fix your mirror. You see, and the reality is that you never can. It's exhausting. You realize you can scrub and scrub and scrub, but it never gets clean. You see, the, but the gospel is altogether different. See, the gospel says God has not just come to you, but God has come to you in your sin and in your brokenness. And the way that you become clean is by acknowledging your sin and your brokenness and by asking him to remake you altogether. You see, that's what we remember every week when we celebrate communion together. What we're remembering is that Jesus was the perfect image of God. What we're remembering is that his body and his blood were broken and shed for us so that he might be able to remake us into his image, that we would be forgiven and cleansed and restored as God's image-bearing representatives. You see, communion, it doesn't make you right with God. It doesn't change your status or your standing with him. Instead, it's an opportunity for you to remember the person and the work of Jesus Jesus, the one who came to bear the image of God that you failed to do, the one who did it perfectly, the one who did it for you, so that instead of remaking God in your image, you might be remade by him into the image of God you were always intended to be. You see the bread and the juice, they're in the back. There's a table on the right and on the left. And during our time of worship, go back, take communion, celebrate Remember all that Jesus has done for you. If you put your trust in him, if the image of God that you worship and surrender to as your Savior and your Lord is Jesus the King, whenever you're ready, go back and take communion. But if that's not where you're at this morning, if you realize this morning that the God that you are worshiping is an image that you have made, not one that has, you have been trying to define God your whole life rather than letting him define himself to you, then this morning I would encourage you, hold off on going to the communion table. Instead, come to Jesus. Come first to him so that you might be remade by him. You see, as we take communion, as we sing, as we talk with God, I'd encourage you guys this morning, ask God to show you the ways that you are tempted to worship him as you want to see him rather than as he truly is. Ask him to give you eyes to see the ways that you try to remake him in your own image. Ask him to help you see the, the parts of him that you try to maximize and the parts that you try to minimize so that he fits neatly into your boxes, so that, he, so that you can control him, so that you can understand him. And ask him to help you surrender, not to the image of God you have made in your mind. Ask him to help you surrender to the, the God he has revealed himself to be. Ask him to give you a soft heart that can receive his correction. Ask him to graciously, by his spirit, confront you so that you might actually turn and have life. Ask him that he might consume you with a love for him, that he might capture your affections, that the image of God revealed to us in Jesus 
might be the thing that consumes your hearts and your desires, that he might be the thing you find most beautiful, that he might be the one to which you come longing to be made new again. You see, you cannot do that in and of yourself. You need God to do that in you. And so ask him for your good, but more importantly, for his great glory. Ask him to do it in you. To that end, let's pray. King Jesus, we come to you this morning. God, we are sinners. God, and what we try to do all the time is to remake you in our image. We try to make man-made images of you to worship so that we might control you, that you, that we might have a God who fits in our boxes, one we can manage, one who will meet our needs and work as we see fit, but that is not who you are. God, and we confess that we, the reason why we do that is because in reality we're trying to worship something else instead of you. We're trying to worship something alongside of you, but God, we need your help so that we might be able to actually worship you, not just supremely, but worship you exclusively. God, more than that, we long that you would empower us as your people to worship you rightly. God, we want to be a people who worships the right God in the right way. God, because you are worthy of that. And so, God, correct us. Confront us. God, break down our pride and our self-sufficiency. God, empower us to be a people who is captivated by the true image of you that you show us in your son, Jesus. God, help us to reject the idea of making you in our own image, fashioning images of you in the way that we want to see you. Instead, help us. King Jesus, to be surrendered to you. God, we cannot do that on our own. God, by your spirit in us, enable that to be true. We love you, Jesus. Help us to be your people. Amen.